Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. I am Ryan Frederick. This is Startup Grind, and we get together and have a conversation with an entrepreneur, an investor. We talk about the process of building a company and starting a company. So uh, we're going to talk with Greg Moran from Wiretap, who's the CEO there. Please help me welcome Greg. I need to thank the, the folks from Rev1 who allow us to come in and, and do this every month and, and hang out. And GBQ, who's a sponsor. So if you need accounting services, tax, fraud, they, they're in um, security now as well. Talk to the folks at GBQ, Heartland Bank, our firm, AWH. We're a digital products firm. So if you need help building digital um, software products, talk to me or talk to uh, Robin or reach out to somebody else on our team. Daryl from King Memory is also a sponsor. So uh, I think that cover. Oh no, I'm, I always forget one. Thankfully, I remember this time. Dickinson Wright, Alex Brown. So if you need to um, some legal services and keep yourself out of trouble, talk to Alex Brown at Dickinson Wright. Um, he's done some stuff uh, for us at IC Stars and at AWH. So I can vouch for the fact that he seems to know what he's doing because I'm not in jail. And at this point, the IRS is not after me. So, but but I haven't filed my taxes yet for this year. So there's still time. So. You might have noticed that I said Greg instead of Jeff, so we pulled a little bit of a bait and switch. Um, Jeff actually was go- is dealing with um, a medical issue, so uh, he tapped out and Greg tapped in. But Greg and I were joking that he's the smarter, funnier, better looking one anyway, so we ended up on the better side of the equation. And Greg's story is actually really interesting. We actually were just talking about the fact that we- he's broken virtually every bone in his body at this point, that's what entrepreneurship will do to you. It will break you down physically. No, because of doing a bunch of other physical, adventurous, crazy shit that we get involved in and people like us want to do. But you also grew up in a really interesting place. So talk about that as a, as a way to start so everybody knows that you're not from um, Brooklyn. That is true. I'm not from Brooklyn. Uh, originally from Detroit. Spent most of my childhood in Zambia. My parents were missionaries, so we moved to Zambia when I was two years old, and we were there till I was 12. And I went to school at a small British boarding school in the corner of Zambia, about 350 miles from the nearest city. And in fact, my niece teaches at that school today. It was founded in 1925, um, which amazes me. I mean, you're walking literally through the bush, and it's like, I think we'll start a school here. <laughs> and they did, and it's still there today, coming up on 100 years uh, of, uh, of existence. So most of my early childhood was really shaped by that experience. Uh, you know, it was a classic British boarding school, think kind of Oliver Twist sort of an experience, very strict, very rigid, very regimented. Um, but by the so same- You just couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. Uh, you know- you, you like it? It's interesting because your childhood is your childhood, and it doesn't matter what circumstance you were raised in. 
if you're loved and cared for and even the people that you think might be mean to you like your teachers but if you know underneath of that is actual concern for your best outcome uh, I don't look on that uh, at all negatively I tell people stories and they're like you know getting paddled by the by the principal and all the strictness that we dealt with and having my knuckles you know smashed by rulers for saying the wrong thing or whatever at the time just was part of our experience and so I don't look back on that and say wow I was abused as a child it was just my childhood but it was in this context of knowing that those people cared about me and you know my development as a person uh, and then I think getting to travel the world uh, at a very young age I think does shape you in terms of how you think about you know diversity in the human condition and you get exposed to diversity of ideas at a time in your life where you're still forming what ideas are. And I think it uh, gives you an openness that uh, I think certainly coming back to the States in junior high school, I found didn't exist in, in the US, but I had experienced it growing up. So I do think it had a profound effect on who I am as a person as well and how I solve problems and how I work with people and how I sort of approach people and interact with them. How can someone that doesn't have that sort of experience early in life of getting exposed to lots of different things. Uh, because I think that if you, I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York, and I think when your world is really small, it can cause some simple-minded thinking and some very sort of close-minded thinking. Uh, so is there a way for someone who maybe is in a very um, small box in their life for much of their childhood becomes very, um, is pretty tiny? Um, is there a way for them to work to expand that so they can at least begin to experience things and then when they have the ability to then to actually manifest it in some way? I mean, I, this could get pretty philosophical here, but uh, you know, at a high level, I think... If you're raised in an environment where you're encouraged to have the confidence that you can do anything, but you're also raised with the humility to approach those opportunities with a learning spirit, I think that you can definitely find a way into a bigger box, right? I mean, I think if somebody comes from a small town and they're sort of raised to believe that you're never going to escape that small town and you're never going to escape the coal mine at the edge of town that everybody works in or whatever, I think that can be very limiting and deterministic. But if you're raised in an environment that says you can do anything, but you're also raised with the humility to know that you don't know everything when you're getting into a situation with a new, whether it's a work situation, a new relationship, uh, you know, a new uh, point of view, a new group of people, a new community, whatever it might be, I think approaching it then with humility. And I think there's this, there's this false view that confidence and humility uh, are incompatible, and they actually are extremely complementary in my mind, and they go together incredibly well in life, and they go together incredibly well in starting a company. Right? I think humility is an incredibly undervalued characteristic in an entrepreneur. Yeah, well, we, we sort of tell entrepreneurs that they need to be confident and they need to understand what the plan is and they need to be able to execute in a, in a very sort of missionary almost way, right? But the reality is 
the best founders and the best companies are the ones that go to the market, get close and stay close to customers, right? And then build stuff and operate in a way that adds value for customers. It has very little to do with their own ego and their own sort of satisfaction out of it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think humility serves you well in those cases, right? It's actually saying, I, I need to learn from the customer. We had a potential customer in today uh, just talking with us, and it was purely just, can you teach us what you care about in your function in a company? And to me, that, that desire to be intimate with the customer, but coming from a place of, I'm not going to tell you what the answer is. I need to know what you think the answer is, right, and work from that premise, recognizing that sometimes people aren't very good at expressing what they truly need, right? And so you've got to get very good and incisive at at cutting through what somebody might say they want to understand what is the underlying condition. Uh, you know, an example of that from an entrepreneurial standpoint would be Steve Jobs, who you know, probably struggled with the humility thing a bit, but he was unbelievably insightful at seeing the actual human need. He was not a technologist. He was a sociologist that used technology as his palette. That's a very different thing. Yeah, for sure. So you... you You've had some important roles at some big companies that everyone would recognize, Ford, Chase, Nationwide. Before that, you were an IT consultant. Um, and consulting, even though it has a little bit of a bad, it can have a little bit of a bad connotation, um, it can also be a really good way to get exposure to lots of different environments, cultures, way of doing business, etc., what did you take out of doing consulting that was positive and that you think sort of helped you get to this point and to do well in the other roles at those other companies that I mentioned? Yeah, so my consulting experience was with Arthur Anderson. And, uh, you know, we were operating from a position of strength at that time. So, you know, we were the biggest consulting firm in what was then the Big Eight is now the Big Four and so we had a lot of sort of street credibility with respect to doing uh, consulting work. Uh, but to your point, I think what I took away from that is getting to work with probably 150 clients over a nine-year period was that adaptability, right, to really work with different types of cultures, different types of leaders, different types of uh, industries, uh, but also learn how companies are bolted together and begin to actually see the patterns of how companies are assembled to create value and to do so sustainably over time. And so these patterns emerge and you begin to see that, you know, while banking is a really different industry than manufacturing, and I've worked in both, there's common elements in every company around how they create value, how they create a culture, how they lead people that you begin to see right, and be able to then apply those patterns, whether you're talking about at the abstraction of Ford where we had 350,000 people or the, uh, you know, the, the level of wiretap where, what was I, Matt, number four in the door? Yeah, so, you know, but the patterns are he the didn't, same. He didn't seem like he really wanted to admit that. It, it's, it, he, he seems... In, well, he was number one right there. So that's he seems a little uncommittal about whether you should still be on the team. <laughs> well, Matt and I actually had a great weekend. We went and saw Ready Player One on Sunday, so it was a little nostalgia trip for anybody who's into uh, old-school technology. A lot of fun. Yeah, there was actually um, a um, 
sort of opening night thing that some people pulled pulled together in town uh, that I went to to to, um, to see it, and it was um, it was very cool to see so many Columbus references in in the movie. So um, yeah, and it was, and I think you know if especially if you're a game player, then it, it's the movie's pretty cool. Um, so your time at Chase, you had a really big fancy title, right? A, you know. Chief Enterprise Technology Officer, or something like that, um, and you banks are big on titles. Y- yeah, I've gathered that over the years. Um, everyone's if, if you last a year, you become a vice president just by the nature of you've you've lasted for a year. Um, th- there is uh, so you built a and you sort of drove a process for a unified technology software platform to run the bank on. Why do that? Why did it matter? Why was that the, the right direction to take? So it, it's interesting. So a, a little bit of a history lesson on Bank One in Columbus. So Bank One was run by the McCoy family, founded and run by the McCoy family here in Columbus. And during the uh, 70s, actually 60s, 70s, and 80s, they had a management philosophy that was called the Uncommon Partnership. And, and Bank One would go out and acquire these smaller banks and bring them into the fold. But they didn't integrate them in any fashion other than their financials. So they basically said, keep running your bank. We're just going to call it Bank One, and we're going to integrate your financial systems. And as long as you perform, we'll leave you alone. And that actually worked for a long time until in the 80s when banks began to actually consolidate and take advantage of scale and take advantage of being able to offer products that would work universally across a large region of the country or the entire country. So suddenly Bank One finds itself in this position where it's got all of these unintegrated banking systems with no ability to create a common experience. If you went to a Bank One in Michigan, your experience was completely different than if you you went to a Bank One in uh, Ohio. And now we take for granted that your ATM works everywhere, your checking product works the same everywhere. But that was not true back then. If you moved from Detroit to Columbus, you had to actually move your accounts, right, even though it was the same bank. So when Jamie Dimon came in to run Bank One and actually kind of resolve some of these issues, I was presiding over seven different sets of deposit systems across the bank. And a partner, a guy named Ralph Beardeman and I that sat next to each other, Ralph kind of worked on the business side of it. I worked on the IT side of it. And we presented to Jamie, and I'll give him the credit for recognizing that this is what we needed to do, was to create this integrated banking platform across the entire system. And Jamie gave us three years to do seven conversions. And so we started down that path. And it actually worked very well to the point where when Bank One and J.P. Morgan Chase actually merged, the operating cost and capability of Bank One was 50% the cost with more capability than J.P. Morgan Chase. So the reason Polaris still exists today is because it was so much more efficient and effective than what J.P. Morgan Chase had, even though that was the bigger bank, that you know they retained the Bank One core banking systems, which are still operating today. <clears throat> so how did you pull that off? How did you accomplish those seven conversions, get on a unified platform in three years, which is a relatively short period of time, to accomplish something of that significance? Yeah, so we had two going at a time. And I'll give, I'll give you know, Ralph gets a ton of credit uh, working with the IT team to develop kind of the formula for how you would do these forced marches through these intense conversions 
what I'll give Jamie the credit for is unwavering sponsorship at the CEO level. Because as you can imagine, every one of these bank presidents wanted to, you know, take us down a different path. You know, oh, I need custom this, custom that. And I knew that Jamie had my back. And so we could move very rapidly through these conversions and get everybody onto a common platform and then start to add in the features that everybody wanted. But adding a feature once across the system versus trying to add it seven times, right, was a much better idea. So something similar happened at Ford, but it was um, more about um, sort of a scalable delivery model, right, because you already talked about sort of the size of, of Ford um, from a people count perspective. So how was that? A similar challenge and a different challenge to what happened in the unified platform at Chase. Yeah, so at Ford, uh, I, was, I was brought in to run global application development. And application development at the time was 14 different development organizations scattered around the globe, about, I think, six or 7,000 people. And I, had, I was given a year to integrate that into a single global application development organization. So AD was done kind of by business unit, and they wanted it to happen enterprise-wide uh, across the company. And so that job was really one of trying to maintain local delivery capability to serve the needs of the business, but really getting common uh, you know, methods and tools deployed across that entire organization so that we could predictably deliver capability for Ford globally. You know, some things really do need to be very customized to the country. You know, you sell cars very differently in India than you sell cars in America. Right. That being said, we wanted one purchasing system globally, right? So we needed the capability to kind of be able to predictably go to purchasing and say we're going to convert you to, you know, whatever, this new purchasing system and be able to make promises and keep them. And so that was really about how do we get way more efficient and how do we get way more predictable and begin to introduce, you know, those were early days of lean application and agile development. And so we were bringing in agile and lean at the same time that we were consolidating these organizations from around the globe and building delivery capability in growing markets like Asia. So we built a thousand person captive in Chennai, India, uh, not as an outsourcing tool, but as a way to have local delivery capability in those time zones and in those uh, regions. So fast forward, you're now at Nationwide. So you meet Jeff, right? So how did you know him? Did you already know that you at some point in your career would do something entrepreneurial and be part of a, a, a startup? Was that seed already there and then it was just a matter of, of some germination? Or was this, oh, this is just such an interesting opportunity and this thing that we're going to do with Wiretap compelled you to, to do it? So I, I probably would have done something entrepreneurial a long time ago. Uh, it's, you know, it's interesting how sort of your life circumstances uh, affect your decision-making. We were talking about taking risk. You know, I'm the youngest of four children. Uh, my parents were missionaries. There was no retirement plan, right? And I had already had the opportunity to see kind of my siblings' trajectory in life, and I realized that I was going to be the one that had to make some money and <laughs> and have a plan. That seems right? like a lot of pressure. It, it was, I mean, I, I would tell you, it was a very distinct moment. I was 19 years old, and I was like, holy shit, it's me. <laughs> i got to figure this out. And so part of the reason I went down the path, I always had an entrepreneurial, I think, spark in me. 
But I went down this path because I felt like I needed to do the safe thing, right? I needed to know that I was going to have enough income to get my parents a house when they retired. Well, it turned out I was 100% correct. They had no plan, no money, no resources. And so it turned out to be a good decision, but I think it did defer some of my sort of what I felt was my freedom to explore that entrepreneurial bent earlier in my career. When I left Nationwide, um, I didn't even then sort of say I'm definitely going to pivot and go entrepreneurial. Right? What happened is I went out and interviewed for it. I got two great offers to be an enterprise CIO at really big companies. And I found myself having an allergic reaction to going back into uh, the corporate environment. And that, that's not a reflection on those companies. They were great companies. They were great offers. That was part of what made it so telling for me. As I'm interviewing with these CEOs, I knew the answers to the questions they were asking. I knew how to solve the problems they were facing as a company. And I just found myself thinking, man, I just, first of all, I don't want to go into a job where I know the answers. Learning is a big deal for me. And I totally knew how to do those jobs. And I suppose for some people that would be a sense of safety, right? Oh, sweet, I'm going to nail this. It's a home run. For me, it was like facing death. Right? I mean, they're going to find me cobwebbed to my desk five years from now, right? You know, and I'm going to just not enjoy solving a two year problem in four years because I'm dealing with all the politics of a large company. And I just found myself, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at jobs that were a 30, 40% raise from what I was making at Nationwide, and Nationwide paid me very well and saying no, right? And I, it took me a little while to unpack that probably the definition of insanity for most people, but, you know, it's okay. My wife still thinks I'm insane. Um, you know, so why would I take a 90% pay cut to make a pivot like that? Um, first of all, I've been very fortunate. So, you know, I have enough resources that I can feel comfortable that I'm, you know, I'm not going to be out of bread and water at some point. But by the same token, uh, the opportunity to work with people I like and trust who have a good idea, and that I can then learn how to start and build a company was just way more interesting to me, like by a, you know many, many factors. And so that's really what happened in the pivot. And I, when I left Nationwide, Jeff was still working at Nationwide, but Matt was on board at, at, at Wiretap, and I came on board on the advisory team, was working part-time, and once I'd kind of turned down those two jobs, it was like, you know what, let's just Let's just get this done. So we went into full-time fundraising mode and off to the races. So has there ever been a moment where you regretted that choice as part of the process? Uh, so you raise a really interesting point. I, I make a very strong distinction in my mind between the uh, regret and doubt, right? So I think regret happens when you make grown-up decisions, Right, Because once you become a grown-up, every decision you make has trade-offs and has implications. Right, What job you choose, what job you don't choose, who you marry, who you don't marry, who you have a relationship, who you don't, you know, what trip you took, what trip you didn't take. Right, There's always trade-offs. And so to me, regret is the domain of, you know, like making hard decisions. And so I would say, yes, there's a lot of regrets that you have. I mean, when, you know, when I left Bank One, I just walked out the door. That was a values-based decision. 
that had to do with how my boss at the time sort of treated people and what I wanted to be associated with. And I walked away from a big pile of, of restricted stock and options. Do I have regret about that? Yeah, because those options, last time I checked, those options were worth three or four million bucks, right? So people say you can't put a price on your values. Well, I can put a very precise price on my values, right? <laughs> uh, probably the result of being the son of missionaries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I have regret. But the real question is, you know, for me is doubt. And doubt is the domain of, of violating your values, and I have no doubts about that decision to leave Bank One, but I've got lots of regrets, three million of them, right? So I use that context to apply to this decision. For me, it's been interesting. It's been clearly doubt-free. This has been such a good decision for me. I mean, in terms of just how I feel, uh, even physically, I was joking the other day, my eyesight, and I'm not making this up, has actually gotten better since I started at Wiretap. And at my age, that should not happen, <laughs> right? And it, I think it's purely a reduction in stress. Hey, that's a really good recruiting ploy. Yeah. Come and work at Wiretap and your health will improve. <laughs> exactly. And I think it has, right? And so there's no regret. I, I certainly are doubt. I would say there certainly have been, you know, particularly we were talking about risk and how you learn to process risk differently. It's like, you know, it's like the first few months you have mornings where you wake up and you're like, Holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, what have I done, right? Uh, and, and, and it's not because of anything that's going on at work. It's just because you're learning to reprocess risk and you're trying to, you know, learning to think about it differently. And in the corporate world, particularly as a manager, you're paid to manage risk through a certain lens. And in the entrepreneurial world, you actually have to think about risk very differently. You know, as a paid manager with a budget, you know, nationwide, I probably had a half, half a billion dollar budget, right? I'm paid to manage that budget conservatively and to try not to spend money. As an entrepreneur at a growing company, right, there are certain things where you have to spend the money as fast as you possibly can, otherwise you have zero chance of winning. Well, that's a completely different mindset. And so a lot of it's been sort of learning how to, understand when when do we have to play to win and spend money really really fast to get something done right and when does it make sense to tap the brakes and put you know and manage it because it's you're spending money that isn't going to contribute to the near-term value and so that's been a learning process for me for sure so what have you learned about yourself through that process anything surprise you um not particularly. I mean, I would, I would look back at my former corporate peers at all of the companies I've worked at, and I would say not very many of them could probably make this pivot. Um, back to my point about humility, I think there's a degree of humility that you have to take on to make this kind of a pivot that I think somebody who has become comfortable with the corporate trappings would struggle with, right? And so for me... Uh, I wouldn't say it was surprising. I've actually enjoyed it. I think it's more authentically who I am. It was one of the things, and I'm not, please don't take this as picking on Nationwide. It's just very typical of a corporate environment. You know, I had this fancy office. I had, you know, a private bathroom and this lighted, heated garage. And I was never comfortable with any of that. That's always made me feel awkward, right? But I know a lot of people in that environment who really relish those perks, Right, so for me, I don't think it was as big an adjustment because it's always been maybe it's my missionary upbringing or something. 
I never was comfortable with that, but for a lot of people, that's aspirational. And so I think it all comes down to your mindset, right? How do you perceive those things? Is your office with a bathroom in it your identity, or is it simply something that's, you know, a piece of that company's culture? I used to joke all the time. People would come into my office and say, I really love your office, and I would always say, it's not my office. It's Nationwide's, right? I'm just playing a role here, right? And so I think that, you know, those, I think, sorts of values helped me a lot in the pivot. I probably would have messaged you repeatedly throughout the day saying, can I come use your bathroom? <laughs> so I wouldn't have to go to one of the public ones. <laughs> so what I did tell people is, if I'm not in my office and you need it, use it. It's not my office. It's nationwide. And if you're in there and you need to use the restroom, there it is. I think it's weird, but, you know, <laughs> it's totally cool. Well, I'm kind of weird, too, so it's okay. I'll tell you a funny story about the bathroom. Yeah. I, I literally... We'll have funny bathroom stories. Okay, so I almost never use this bathroom. The only time I would use it is if, like, somebody was physically waiting outside my door, it was going to be weird to walk past them to go to the public restroom. So I would use the public restroom most of the time. I came into the office one morning, and uh, I heard the toilet in the bathroom running, right? So I, shh, you know, I'm like... So I went out to my secretary, and I said hey, could you call down to maintenance, the bathroom, the toilet's running, and I you know, just want somebody to fix it. So like 20 minutes later, and this is like on this executive floor at Nationwide, you know, this guy comes walking onto the floor with this huge plunger over his shoulder. He's like, I understand we have a problem here. <laughs> You're like, great, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't me. It, trust me, it wasn't me. Um, so let's... Talk about risk a little bit more, because um, we, were, we were chatting before we started, and people often think that um, they're, m most of us, by nurture and nature, are risk adverse. And w But I think there's an ability to, we all have a risk muscle, and I think there's the ability to strengthen that muscle over time. And one of the ways that I think people can begin to do that is taking physical risks. And this goes back to the fact that, that Greg's broken every bone in his body. I've also broken you know, many things because when you do physically adventurous things, sometimes there's a physical um, danger to it that you might, you might get hurt. But what also happens is you figure out how to deal with the risk mentally and emotionally in addition to the physical part of it. Talk about your experience with that, if you would, for a little bit. Yeah, so I completely agree with that. I mean, I think two things happen, and this is this is not a you know seminar on you should all start mountain biking tomorrow, but <laughs> but I do think that when you do things that even for you you perceive as risky, you build resilience, you build muscle around your ability to tolerate that emotionally and mentally. So. You know, it's one of the things you see in the medical field, right, where doctors get stressed intensely during their internship. Why? Because they make life and death decisions when they're tired, right, and they have to learn how to do that. That's muscle you build, right? Well, the same thing happens, I think, from a risk standpoint in that when you uh, build that resilience to tolerating risk and understanding how to manage your emotions, your decision-making and capabilities in those moments, you make yourself stronger. I think also it just helps you with your perspective on risk. You know, I broke my neck in 1999 body surfing, and uh, it was really interesting 
you know, coming back from that, back to my job, to just how I perceived risk differently. I mean, I came within a millimeter of severing my spine. Suddenly that bad budget meeting just doesn't seem like that big of a deal, <laughs> right? And so it helps you, not that I'm saying you should all break your necks because this is a great learning opportunity, uh, but when you have those experiences, if you, if you take away from it the learning, right, you, you definitely build some resilience around kind of your tolerance for risk and you get some perspective on it, right? Losing your job is not that big a deal, really in the whole scheme of things, and oftentimes leads to greater opportunity for you, right? So um, let's dig into wiretap a little, uh, a little deeper. What problem do you guys solve and who do you, who do you solve it for? Yeah, so the the, uh, the vision for the product really, really, uh, uh, you know, Jeff gets the credit for that, working with Matt and, and Sean and James, the other co-founders, who uh, saw this new category of product emerging in the market, this enterprise social collaboration capability. And at the end of the day, it's it, it, there's no magic to it, right? Social collaboration in enterprises coming out of the consumer world, you know, like Facebook, et cetera. It's simply evidence of man's eternal quest for better tools to communicate with each other, right? And until we get a perfect analogy for us having a conversation, we're going to keep inventing technology that tries to get us closer to that, right? And that's what's happened, right? So Microsoft Yammer, Microsoft Teams, Slack, uh, Workplace by Facebook, uh, you know, Atlassian's new Stride product, whatever it is, they're all software attempts to give us better ways to collaborate. I think we've all kind of moved beyond email. Email was never any good. It was just better than inner office mail, right? And so we've all kind of moved beyond. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that email doesn't have a role in the world, but it's a role that's consistent with what inner office mail did without a yellow envelope, right? So when you look at that, we, uh, we took a look at kind of that whole space and realized a couple things. Number one, that environment needs to, you know, take on normal attributes that are required in an enterprise with respect to security and with respect to policies, just like everything else. Everybody knows their email is monitored and they're looking for, you know, PII or whatever. None of that had been done for the enterprise social network space. So that was an immediate opportunity. Just get basic security in place that complements, you know, kind of blunt instruments like CASBs and, and you know, next-gen firewalls. Uh, the second piece was begin to work on kind of cultural compliance, you know, HR compliance. And uh, I'll use an example. I went from Ford to Nationwide. You cannot imagine more distinct cultures, right? At Ford, if you didn't drop an F-bomb in a message, you weren't serious. At Nationwide, if you drop an F-bomb in a message, you're fired, right? There's a really different cultures, right? So... <coughs> Uh, we recognize the need for tunable cultural you know, compliance capability that was really appropriate to the culture of a company and what it wants to reinforce. So we built a set of tools that does that. And then the last kind of bastion of what we've been focused on is recognizing how much you can learn. So you know, think about it. We've created you know, a secure product. We've made it safe for the employees inside the culture you're trying to create. What could you learn from the human interaction inside of an organization? If you had, you know, 15 million enterprise collaboration messages, would you be able to gain some insights from that that not only help you build better policies for the future or even automatic policies, 
but also help you run your company better. I mean, how insightful would it be to be able to get your Gallup engagement survey, your annual employee satisfaction survey, every single day because you can see what sentiment is doing in the organization at any given moment. You know, what if you could learn and anticipate when you've got a security risk because it turns out if a DBA's sentiment score drops, you know, from uh, below three on a five-point scale, the odds that they're going to do something nefarious now go way up. And you can sit down and say, hey, what's going on, Joe? You're really unhappy, <laughs> right? And it could be Joe's really ticked off about the change you made in the, you know, the benefit plan, which is the easiest thing to fix, right? But if you don't fix it, now you've got a real problem on your hands. Or what if you could create an environment where, you know, like at Google, where you had 50% or some high percentage of their employee base disenfranchised by their diversity program, not because of the objective of it, but because of how it was being rolled out. You know, there's no way James Damore's first communication on that topic was his manifesto. There's just no way, right? Or you look at the, uh, the uh, Uber situation with a Susan Fowler, where she's actively being harassed on the company's social collaboration network. Two bad things happen. Now you've had an employee who's been harassed, and now for sure she's never going to participate on that collaboration network because she knows for sure it's not safe. So that's really what we're about. It, was the opportunity there just because the use of these social collaboration tools inside of corporations is so new? Or were, have, did others start working on it and you guys just have built a better mousetrap? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think it's still an ascent market. I mean, I would say we are still a little bit ahead of the curve in that a lot of our sales conversations quickly become adoption conversations as companies are trying to figure out. Like, companies don't know the difference between Yammer and Slack. Well, they're really different products, and they have a very different purpose in the world, but people put them in the same category. Well, they're not really the same thing. So a lot of it is still education, so we are up and out in front of the curve. Uh, I think, you know, we at least like to think, and there's always some arrogance and kind of, and, and by the way, arrogance is not the same thing as confidence, right? Arrogance is blind. Confidence is insightful. Grounded in some reality. Right, exactly. And so it's easy for us as a product company, I think, and we have to watch for this, is to get arrogant about it, but we do pay a lot of attention to the design of the product because we came out of the enterprise space. So we've designed it to operate in the enterprise space, and we've designed it to protect the user experience in these collaboration environments. Anybody can build a dumb filtering mechanism that looks for something bad and just kills it. But that's not good design. That would be like instead of a stoplight having a barrier that just pops up and stops you. Right? It would be effective. It would do a lot of damage, right? And so we've worked very hard on the design side to craft a product that really uh, preserves the user experience and actually reinforces and encourages collaboration while still having these attributes of sort of uh, what we call big C compliance, which is compliance with your HR policies, compliance with your security, and, and uh, you know, compliance with any regulatory environment that you have to uh, adhere to. But do it in a way that it's invisible. You don't have a big policy manual. You're not having a bunch of intervention into your environment. Selling into enterprises for most startups is incredibly challenging because most enterprises are not in the business of giving startups a chance. Uh, 
how have you guys been successful at it so far? And what do you, are there some things there that, that other startups can potentially leverage that are building enterprise products? Or is it, do you think there, there's some special attachment to the product and the space that you're talking to enterprises about? No, it's really hard. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Selling to the enterprise as a startup is really, really hard. First of all, just getting on the radar screen. You know, 90% of IT purchase decisions in large enterprises are driven by a Gartner magic quadrant. That's the reality. Gartner, and I'm not picking on Gartner, there's other players, but Gartner certainly is the 600-pound gorilla in the room on this. They have huge influence, right? It's the old joke about nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Well, nobody ever got fired for choosing something that's on a Gartner magic quadrant. And so you have to penetrate that haze with sort of an awareness that fights against the grain. You know, Gardner doesn't even have a magic quadrant in this category yet. And so we've got to market through that and create an impression in the enterprise space that gives us an opportunity. Uh, and so the short answer is to, you know, how have we done that? Uh, it's largely been through our partnerships with our, our two primary platform partners, which are Facebook and Microsoft. So if they're... You know, I think we would be naive to say that we could, by ourselves, create an impression on the market that was meaningful. Ultimately, you can create a brand that I think does get recognition, but in these early days, you need somebody to, to walk you into your potential customers. And so we're working incredibly hard on those ecosystems and those partnerships. And they're hard. I sort of joke like working with Microsoft is a little bit like trying to make love to an elephant. Right, it's a little complicated, and you don't know where you are all the time, and you know I don't know. Do I scratch here? I'm not sure what happens, right? But you do learn your way through that partnership. Sorry for the analogy, but uh, you get the picture. It's a good visual, right? <laughs> um, so that's hard work, even just building a relationship. Now, what what's the payback on that? You know, Microsoft will tell you for every dollar of revenue that they have, they generate $9 of revenue in the channel, right? It's a very powerful ecosystem, So, but you've got to work at it, right? So are they um, – and typically, those kinds of partners will only bring you in if you're making their life easier. You're either helping them close deals at a higher level or you're making deals happen faster, and is that what you're seeing with Microsoft and Facebook, that they're bringing you in because they're experiencing um, those kinds of, of positive metrics when they do bring you into deals? Yes. So uh, absolutely. And I'll give you two different examples, one with Facebook, one with uh, Microsoft, just to illustrate the point. So with Microsoft, Microsoft sells its products in these license packs like E1, E3, E5. And when you buy like an E3 license with Microsoft – you are paying for this collaboration capability. So you get Yammer, you get Teams. Really great products. But then most clients are saying, wait a minute, I can't deploy this product because I don't have any monitoring in place. I have no ability to secure it. And so then they start pushing back on Microsoft and saying, I don't know that I want to pay for an E3 license if I'm going to have tools that I can't deploy. So that's where we become a problem solver for the account teams at these large enterprise accounts because they want to sell an E3 license, right? And so for us, it, we become 
the solution. And so the account teams bring us in and go, no, 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 you're good, right? Work with these wiretap guys, and you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have all that collaboration capability. You get a big win with your associates, uh, and right, you've got the security in, in place that you need. So that's an example of in the Microsoft ecosystem how we solve a problem. On the Facebook side, and Facebook is more prevalent internationally, uh, and so in Europe in particular, you've got this new law that's coming into effect at the end of May called GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. GDPR is a fundamental shift in the data rights of data that you create as an employee inside of a company. So historically, data that was generated by you as an employee of a company was owned by the company. With GDPR, that basically the bit flips. And any data you produce as an employee is now your data, and you have control over it. And you can ask the company, right, um, for, you know, at any moment, you can say, I want to see all my data. And you can also say, I want you to make me disappear. So if you leave the company, you can say, make me disappear from your network, right? That's an actually really difficult problem to solve, but it's applicable across all domains, including collaboration. So we've developed inside of our platform, both for the Microsoft world and for the Facebook world, a GDPR solution, a data management solution, that companies who now have to be compliant by May 25th of this year have the opportunity to be. So we solve that problem because they want the collaboration capability, but they've got to be able to be compliant. How long before that comes to, comes to the U.S.? I think it's only a matter of time. I think the, the horse is out of the barn for sure on this issue of pivoting data ownership rights to the individual. I think America is going to sit back and watch a little bit how this gets adjudicated in court because none of this has been tried in court. But I'll tell you, the teeth on this thing are huge. Give you a sense of it. The minimum fine for a single violation of GDPR is $20 million, and it can go as high as 4% of your top-line revenue. So they put serious teeth into this, right? So I think, I think it's coming, right? And I think ultimately everybody will look at it as a good thing, but it's going to be very disruptive, and we're going to have to sort of see how it gets adjudicated and enforced. Let's talk about the pace that you guys have been going at Wiretap. And you, we, were, we were chatting before that you're probably going to outgrow your current space you know, by, the end of, by the end of the year. Uh, let's talk a little bit about team size, talk about how you know, quickly things have been progressing and, and sort of where you expect things to go in the next year or two. So, uh, so we're now about 27, 28 people, Matt. Yeah, about 27, 28 people. Uh, when we closed our first round, we, I think, had uh, three or four employees on board. So we've grown rapidly but not excessively. Um, we put a heavy focus on putting the team in place, so we got space, and then started building out the entire value chain. Uh, and we've steadily done that over time, uh, you know, partnering with outside companies until we had internal capabilities. So like Dan's here from Minds On. Minds On was our marketing partner uh, in the early days and helped us get off the ground months ahead of what we could have done internally because we just didn't have any execution capability. So now we've got kind of the whole value chain addressed uh, across the, the team. We finally got our full sales team on board probably end of third quarter last year. Um, and this year is going to be largely about execution until we kind of get that next level curve rolling on the revenue side. So 
uh, our anticipation would be our team size will probably stay about where it is for another three to four months, and then we'll see the next level of growth begin to kick in uh, as we get uh, traction. On the product side, I would characterize us as well ahead of plan. We were kind of forced to do that. Microsoft made some changes in their product strategy, and then we anticipated Facebook launching its product. Both were going to market last year about September. So very early on last year, we made the decision to invest in those platforms and built out product to cover that, uh, which I think has positioned us very well in the market. So, you know, Facebook has just done a joint press release. We're the only product in this category for them that's already an approved partner, right? And, uh, you know, I, I feel bad for what Facebook is going through, although I think most of us would have anticipated these challenges coming at some point in their development. Um, but it's really fortunate for us because we're sort of part of the solution for them. And so, you know, their partnership with us is very strong. How have you funded the company to this point? And are you going to anticipate raising more money relatively soon? Yeah, so we did we did an A round in two tranches. We did a tranche last February. We did a tranche that just closed in March of this year. Uh, so, and that was a, a local venture firm. So Draper Triangle is our lead, uh, along with Ohio Innovation Fund, and then uh, Rev One and Jumpstart, uh, which is Rev One's sister company in Cleveland. Uh, both came in on our first uh, in in both rounds or both tranches of that round and then a couple of other investors. So it's all been venture, uh, venture funded. Um, right now, all things being equal, we would anticipate, you know, if we're on plan, we'd anticipate a B round early in 2019. How much have you raised so far? A little over $8 million. You can do okay with $8 million. You can run for a while. Yep. That's actually probably one of the biggest raises in a single round, even though there were two tranches, probably one of the biggest raises in Ohio in the last, maybe ever, if certainly not in like the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, honestly, I haven't dug into that. I mean, I Root's, think Root has sort of blown everybody out of the water now with their $50 million, $51 million raise, but, you know. Um, but that was a B round. But so, that was B, right. So yeah. from an A round, that's, yeah, that's a pretty healthy, that's a help, pretty healthy raise. So I give credit to the founders. So the crown, the founders, you know, we're revenue generating long before we did our first round. And so that, that put us in the enviable position of actually having ARR. And so we skipped an A round, or uh, I'm sorry, a seed round, and went straight to an A round. But the valuation was there because the ARR was there, right? So um, I can't take any credit for that. These guys did the hard work and sat in Matt's basement and sold the product to people. But um, it did set us up very, very well for, uh, I think, a very strong A round. What key metrics do you pay attention to and does the rest of the team pay attention to as to whether you are on plan? Because you've talked about being on plan a couple of times. What does that mean? How do you know? Yeah, so we, we watch a broad uh, you know, array of metrics, I think, like every, every software company does. We also are very transparent about it. So if you come to our offices, we've got a nine. The only thing we spend a ton of money on, and Andy could tell you about this, we put up a very fancy uh, planar array of nine 55-inch screens. What's cool about it is we can throw metrics up all on any combination of the screen. So every morning when you walk in, you know, lower left, you're going to see our sales pipeline. 
the middle you're going to see our development pipeline. You're literally seeing the development cards move in real time. And then to the right, you're seeing all of our marketing metrics. And above that, you're seeing, uh, you know, our product design metrics. So all around, you know, and very transparently, uh, we try to manage the company through sort of visual tools. And then the stuff that we're diving into will vary based on what's going on at a given moment in time. So right now, huge focus on a major release that we've got coming up this month. So there's a lot of focus and attention on is that development on track? Is there any blockers? What are those blockers? How do we solve those problems? Simultaneously, this is the year that's about top line, right? I mean, we've kind of run out of excuses to not sell the product a lot, right? Which is a good problem to have, right? So now we've got a good product. We know it's viable. Our partners like it. It's go-to-market time. And so there's a huge focus on the sales pipeline and are things moving through there and they're moving through, you know, between stages. It's, once you've got the marketing attention and you're getting the awareness, now it's an execution game and a numbers game. Yeah. Um, Darren is in the back with microphones, so if you've got a question, we've got time for a couple of questions. Darren will hand, raise your hand. Darren will get you a mic um, so that we can make sure that we all can hear your question. What are the traits you'd say that any successful business would need, like the characteristics? So, I mean, I'll start at the very high level. I think you need a good idea, you need people that you trust and are competent, and you need the willingness to execute, work hard, right? I mean, so if you say at the highest level, if you have those three ingredients, you've got a shot at success. I mean, if it's a viable idea, you've got people you trust and they're competent, and you're willing to execute. And that was actually one of the key things when I started thinking about risks differently. I realized we had all those ingredients. And it gave me a huge amount of peace around the risk. Wait a minute. I'm working with people I know, I trust, and I know they're good at what they do. Our idea is a really good one, and I've been executing for 30 years. I'm not worried about execution, right? So now it becomes, oh, well, let's just get to work, right? Uh, which is what we did. But I think going beyond that, I think culture matters immensely, and we've been very explicit about our culture from the beginning. We had a you know, 15-page culture deck before we took our first round of investment. Why? Because I think you have to be intentional about that, and you have to be explicit about that, right? And so culture is a big piece of what we pay attention to so that the execution actually works, right? What would you say Wiretap's culture is? Uh, it is, it's, uh, it has a lot of freedom tied into it. So we don't have a lot of rules, what we do have is a lot of principles, and so it's one of the things... Can, can people use the F word in an email? Yes. Okay. And do. <laughs> um, but, if you, you know, we all know the difference between using F word in an email and having it about the issue and having it about the person, right? And you can really tell the difference when that happens, right? So we're watching for that, right? But, you know, we have a typical startup environment where there's a lot of freedom, but around it are a set of principles, right? So... I don't want a 50-page HR manual. HR manuals, and I've worked in lots of big companies, HR manuals are nothing but stories. Stories of people who broke the culture, and instead of fixing the problem, the company accommodated the person. That's one thing we don't do. So we're very explicit about we will protect our culture very you know, aggressively from people who don't respect it. So... You know, we've got a beer tap like every other startup. We've got a bourbon room. We've got, you know, that's just an easy example. 
I don't have any problem with it, right? If somebody wants to have a beer at lunch, great, have a beer at lunch. But if somebody's abusing that privilege, we'll just move the person out, right, instead of changing our policy, right? And I've seen too many companies do that. So, you know, that's an example. We look for people who are focused on outcomes, not ours. We don't have a vacation policy. Why? Because we're looking for people who take accountability for the outcomes, then take the vacation you need. You know, we've only got two suggested principles. Don't screw over your customers and don't screw over your coworkers. Communicate. But take the time you need, right? So it's a lot of freedom with underlying principles that are explicit in our culture deck that help everybody understand this is what it means to be a wiretapper and this is what we care about and look for. And if that's the kind of place you want to work and that's the sort of environment that you want to contribute to, come on board and recognize that if you don't respect that culture, we'll fix the actual problem, which is you. So we, we talk a lot about execution, and execution is more important than ideas, um, and execution is, is really the difference between, um, I guess, you know, manifesting an outcome and a, and a destiny that you want and not. Many people, especially when they're young, have not had lots of circumstances to demonstrate discipline of execution. How can someone begin to demonstrate that to themselves and others that they firmly believe that they could take a leap like starting a company and be confident that they've got discipline of execution in them? Yeah, so uh, part of it is uh, we've cheated a little bit. So right now, we've been hiring people that we already know know how to execute. And it's one of the things we test for when we're talking to people. We're looking for people, like today, we don't have a shop where we're developing people into being great developers. We're going and hiring great developers, right? So we're cheating a little bit, but that won't scale long term. So we'll have to build some of that capability. But the other thing comes back to the culture. You know, one of the things that Jeff says all the time when we bring somebody in, and at this point we've been bringing in largely people to run a department, right? He says, you're the CEO of your department, right? So we start from the beginning with, you, we're going to have your back. We want you to make decisions, right? We want you to tell us how to do the thing that we're hiring you to do versus coming and asking us for permission to do your job. Right? So that's a philosophical thing that we just try and reinforce every single day in the environment. Yeah. Yeah, I had a quick question. Uh, you talked a little bit about the clients that you're working with having different cultures, right? And to me, that kind of sounds like if you're working with vastly different cultures, it's almost like a custom development project for each one. How do you kind of look at the product as a whole and try and figure out how to scale that? And like, how do you, how would you explain wiretap as a product to the Fords of the world versus the nationwide's of the world, right? Yeah, so uh, great question. So the product design really is configurable, you know, from the ground up. So having come out of the enterprise space, we kind of recognize that challenge. And so the policy engine that we've built is incredibly flexible and gives you the ability to, at amazing levels of granularity, customize it to your environment. And, and cultural differences. You know, obviously a really big company in India is looking for different inappropriate words than a really big company in the U.S. And so 
the keyword lists for the companies in India, I, if I gave you the list, like half the words you wouldn't recognize, but in India it means something really inappropriate, right? So it's very customizable. It's also integrated with Active Directory, so you can actually specify the policy for even different parts of the company that need different rules. So like in financial services, if you've got a regulated user, the rules are going to be different for them than somebody who might work in, you know, HR or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Matt could actually answer that question well. It's a tricky game. Uh, and just to be clear, we don't support Slack today. Slack doesn't have a huge amount of penetration in the enterprise space yet, so we're kind of focused where the gravity is, but we'll get there. Um, but with Microsoft and Facebook specifically, you know, to be honest, they are perfectly capable of changing their API capabilities on a day-to-day -day basis and not telling us. And so intimacy with those development teams is a piece of what partnership means, right? So we got to stay very close to them and understand how they're iterating their capability. You can imagine right now, Facebook's doing some interesting soul searching on the APIs for their products. On the consumer side, for sure, but on the you know, commercial side, it's causing them to kind of come back and go, wait a minute, are we all good with everything that we're letting developers do, right? So we just got to stay close to them and then uh, adapting to what we learn from each customer and what they're looking for. Please help me thank Greg for joining us tonight. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brian Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding.